Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Well, this next story is timely as pressure builds on the campaign Kids Off Nauru. And we did hear that, um, you know, one of our earlier interviews this year was with people from the MICA organisation. They organised a women's delegation to go and see the Prime Minister, the Minister for Immigration and other senior figures in Canberra a few weeks ago. They think that that might have actually been the cause of some of the turnaround in what the government is indicating about some of the kids in Nauru at the moment in detention. That's that's pretty good. Um, it was a factor cited for the loss of the blue ribbon seat of Wentworth, the refusal to bring to an end this years of this five years of the asylum seekers uh, who are told they will never come to Australia. The government is still saying they will never come to Australia. Um, but there are some kids that are coming out for medical checks, and that's a good sign. Well, when psychiatrist and mother of three, Dr Emma Adams, went to Darwin as an observer of conditions for mothers and babies in the immigration detention centres there, she did expect it to be confronting. What she didn't know was that it would turn her mind around to the point where she was consumed by thoughts of one of the refugees she met, consumed by what his mother would be thinking and asking and requiring her to do. That verse from Micah 6.8, What does the Lord require of me? Indeed. That refugee was Abdul. He was a 16-year-old, unaccompanied Hazara boy. And Emma Adams embarked on a journey through a, an almost incomprehensible maze of bureaucratic red tape to bring Abdul out of detention and to give him a home with her family in Canberra. She's written a book on that experience. It's called Unbreakable Threads. And I began by asking her why she decided to write the story. Because I want to change the stories that we hear about um, asylum seekers and people who arrive on boats. Mm -hmm. um, there hasn't been a humanity um, shown of these people. And I really wanted to show Abdul as this, and Ahad as these beautiful, beautiful boys. Yes. So where did you first meet Abdul and Ahad? Five years ago, I went as a volunteer observer um, to check on the well-being of mums and bubs in an immigration detention centre in Darwin. I went to see how mums and babies were faring from a psychiatric point of view, and one of my colleagues was an obstetrician as well. I've got to say, after I've had 20 years' experience in psychiatry, but nothing prepared me for what I saw. What did you see? Well, the atmosphere, and this was the supposedly family-friendly version of the detention centre, the atmosphere was suffocating. They were, all had high wire fences, and there was one in Darwin called Wickham, which even had a double 10-metre-high electrified fence and prison-style airlock gates. Mm. Now, all, every mother I saw was suffering, like every mother, and all the children were distressed. I hadn't ever seen anything like it. You know, mums who were sitting unresponsive to their own children because they were just lost in their misery. Um, one woman told me about her escape across the Indian Ocean. Her little girl was sitting beside her weeping, but the mum was oblivious, saying, we should have just been eaten by sharks. Um, I saw children with, with dead eyes, um, and children with very abnormal behaviour. The parents were aware of it, but and they were distraught, but they just didn't have... 
they couldn't do anything about it. Well, that's interesting. You've mentioned the reaction of the parents or the non-reaction twice. It's obviously yeah. significant. What, what did you make of that as a professional? Uh, it was trauma. They had the, the you know, the thousand-yard stares that you often see yes. in return soldiers. Yes. Um, they were completely dissociated, which is a stress response. You know, when you can't do anything about it, you kind of shut off and become frozen. Well, there's the stress of having got here. Then there's the stress of looking f- to the future, which is more of the same. And if you're on Nauru or Manus or, you know, those places, it is literally just on into eternity in the same spot. Yeah, well, these were mums who at the time were brought on shore from Nauru to have their babies. I see. And they knew as soon as they had their babies, they would be shipped back. Oh, dear. Hmm. And I think that's that's why they were so so despairing. All right. So this was when you met um, Abdul, who would become later uh, your house guest. Is that the way? You, how did you describe that? Um, well, I, I would describe him as my son, actually. Okay. <laughs> he um, was a sixteen-year-old unaccompanied child. So his mum. He's still in Afghanistan, and she sent him here because his life was in danger. He is Hazara, which is an ethnic and religious minority in right. Afghanistan, yes. and they're targeted by the Taliban yes. and by ISIS. And, and when you say she sent him here, I'm sorry, how did they arrive, he and his brother? He, Well, Abdul came on a boat. He escaped by going through um, a number of countries and I have to say because often people say well why didn't they stop at the first country they came to Mm. and the answer is because those countries aren't signatories to the refugee convention Mm. so if you're in those places you're likely to be put in jail you're not allowed to work and you're not allowed to have an education like there's no way you can have a future in those countries so that's why they came to Australia and, and he was seeking safety. Ahad came, I met Ahad um, a little bit later. Um, he'd been living in the community in a group house while going to year 10 in um, Brisbane. Mm. And because he arrived um, somewhat earlier, his, his trajectory in Australia has changed. So Ahad is now an Australian citizen Whereas Abdul, because he arrived at that magical um, cut-off date, yep. after the cut-off date of um, July 19, 2013, has been told he'll never be allowed to settle in Australia. I see. I see. Well, you wrote to him then after meeting him in Darwin, and you mm. write in these terms, I'm the doctor that came with Chill Out, that's the name of the organisation, to Darwin in December. You were helping translate for some families, but you also described your situation and concerns about your mother worrying about you and your wish to study economics. And then this killer paragraph, (laughs) after much reflection and discussion with my family, I felt it would be a no-brainer that you may enjoy staying with our family. I don't know what the chances are more than if we didn't try at all. Who are we? You've met me briefly. I know this puts you in a difficult situation as I'm a stranger. And so you go on to talk about mm. your husband, Rob, and, and your and your sons. So what did it take to write that letter? A lot of reflection, um, uh, discussions with my husband, 
Um, but when it came down to it, this was this lovely, lovely boy who was in this terrible situation. You know, he was a much-loved child. And I just, I just put myself in his mother's shoes. Like, if my children were under the threat that he had been in Afghanistan, I'd put my children on the boat. But I would have hoped that there'd be somebody there ready to catch them when they arrived. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that flips. That really does. And that's your objective in writing this book. That flips yeah. it, doesn't it? Yes, our guest is Emma Adams. She is the author of Unbreakable Threads. So when you wrote to Abdul, was his, what was his response? First, I had to be able to connect with him to get a response. And it was very hard to get the letter to him. Yes. Um, um, but I managed to send it through some people who were visiting the detention centre. Um, we eventually um, connected on Facebook and the first reply was that he just needs to think about it, which I think is a very, very good sign. Yeah, I mean, he was about, what, 15 or something? He'd just turned 16. Hmm. And then the next response was he did think about it. And what he thought about was his responsibility in looking after our family and that he would feel responsible for us. Wow. Which, <laughs> yeah. But um, late, nowadays he says he didn't think he had any hope of getting out. And it was just, he, just, he kind of humoured me oh. um, in saying that he'd do it, but he had no hope. He thought he'd be sent to Nauru. Um, and, but luckily, <laughs> after... A year of trying, he he was allowed to come out and stay with us. And Emma, by what process or protocol or policy did that happen? Well, by none, actually. Um, I failed. All my letters amounted to nothing. And in fact, I feel sick when I think about it, but my efforts could have actually got him sent to Nauru. After we looked at his um, immigration documents, this was some years after Abdul was staying with us, hmm. I saw that our my letter to um, the immigration minister, who was Scott Morrison, was received and looked at, and the response was, it looks like there's some possible media interest here. We'll get him to Nauru as soon as possible hmm. to avoid that media interest. Eventually, he was let out because um, there was a situation um, at the end of 2014 where um, Scott Morrison wanted to pass some bills through Parliament about temporary protection visas and fast-track processing. And his deal was he would keep the children locked in detention if his bills weren't passed. If his bills were allowed to pass as a sweetener, he'd let the children go. I think these were fairly draconian bills and part of me was hoping they didn't get passed. But if that happened, Abdul would, wouldn't be free. <laughs> it was a really, really horrible situation. And I know a lot of crossbench senators had, were just... Conflicted. Distraught. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. Well, in, in some ways, it's similar to what we're going through now, this current period, this debate over we'll let, some, we'll let uh, New Zealand take some of these refugees, but you have to pass these draconian laws so they'll never come back. 
And I know the crossbench is grappling with that right now. Well, fast forward, Emma, and uh, through all of that, Abdul did come to you to live with your family. How old were your own kids at that time? 10, 11 and 15. How did they feel about it all? Well, we told them about... When we discussed it at first, we told them about Abdul... And I kind of wanted to do it in a way in, you know, to allow them to ventilate and about their fears. But I didn't want to traumatise them by talking about the situation in Afghanistan and, and how dire it was. Um, so they all had different reactions according to their personalities. Um, they were all very keen and they were interested. I suppose interested, and my youngest just wanted like another playmate. He was he was he was excited. The other two, I think, had had because they were older, had kind of reflected on it and wondered if there were any problems. So, how did Abdul fit into your family? That can't be an easy thing. It was a process. It was it's, it's, it hasn't been a fairy tale. Um, when he first arrived, he was quite traumatized and shut down. And it probably took at least six months for him to really come out of his shell. Um, Now, for the first few weeks, he wouldn't leave the house unless it was with me or Rob or even the boys. Um, And even, you know, I'd I'd ask, you know, if you'd like to do something, and the response was, whatever you want. Um, But that, that phase has passed. <laughs> and, and he's his own man now, and and I was looking forward to having some arguments with him because that means <laughs> that he's developed his own self. But you know, you have to be careful what you wish for sometimes. <laughs> well, I think uh, growing up young men is not easy in any circumstance, and uh, that's what you're doing now with four. So you know, yeah. that's that's quite a load. Emma Adams is our guest. She adopted. But that's not right, is it? You? What's the no. official term? Fostered? Well, well no, he was 16. there's no official, there's no official term. Mm, um, interesting. We, when he came to us, um, he'd just turned 17, and we were his um, community custodians. Gosh. So we didn't actually have a welfare role as far mm. as the department were concerned. We just provided accommodation and had to enforce his curfews. Well, um, isn't it interesting that we don't have a, a word for that or a particular role for it? And you, you start to wonder whether that's not some sort of future possibility for these kids on these other kids on Nauru. Yeah, I, I think most of the kids on Nauru now have parents. Well, that's true. Yes. Um, so what we need to do is to look after the parents and the parents' mental health so they can look after their children. Mm. And the way to look after their mental health is to give them hope. Mm. Now, Emma, your book, Unbreakable Threads, tells this story, uh, and it tells it in a very frank, first-hand way. One of the, the subtitle is The True Story of an Australian Mother, a Refugee Boy, and What It Really Means to Be a Family. So yeah. what does it really mean to be a family? Um, well, first of all, a piece of paper doesn't define a family. <laughs> yeah. And blood doesn't define a family. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, who who cares about you? Who's there for you? Um, who has you in their mind? 
with with that, we qualify as a family. <laughs> when he came to you, you told Abdul that you you felt it was your responsibility, in a sense, to act for his mother. Yes, yes, yeah. I felt that she um, was my sister. That's lovely. Have yeah. you ever met or corresponded? Yes, we um, we've we've connected on. Um, like the like Skype or some internet um, <laughs> thing. Something <laughs> the boys understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. And um, we've we've done that we've done that a couple of times with the boys translating, mm. um, which is a bit always a bit tricky because you know as mums we want to ask you know the hard the right. hard questions and yeah. I always think you know boys are you, what are you translating here? Yeah. <laughs> but you know we we see each other, can look at each other. We've got that language that mothers can share, but you don't actually need words. Delightful. (laughs) Yeah. And what's been her posture towards you? Well, at first she offered, she said, if I need to, and I forget the exact term, but it was something like, if I need to give them a kick in the pants, I'm entirely (laughs) able to. Mm. And um, look, she's been very thankful and grateful that that we've stepped in for the boys. Zainab, her name is, I gather. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, in a way, what she had hoped and, I guess, prayed for as she sent her sons off, um, yes. in the hands of what, you know, have been called people smugglers, this is what she was hoping for. But it happens to so few. She must be one of yeah. the few that that's actually happened for. I, it, I don't think it happens very often. There are a lot of um, unaccompanied. Well, they're not children anymore because mm. you know five five years has passed, and um, most are you know young adults. But even if you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty, going on, you know, in, people need a parent. You know, somebody just to look out for them and and be that mentor or guide. Well, yeah, in, in most states of Australia, right at the moment, we're. Um, discussing whether kids in care whose support cuts off at 18 should have that support extended for 21 for the very same reasons. But yeah. uh, we're not applying that same rule to these kids. They've become fodder in a in a political um, manoeuvre. W- what do you think, though, about, or what does Abdul think about the process of coming here? He was, as I say, in the hands of these uh, people smugglers, and they've been demonised. Mm. Um, well, to me, to me, he hasn't actually said too much about the actual people smugglers, mm. um, and he—I've written about this in in the book. I had told me once about his um, journey here, and it sounds on the surface it sounds like this adventure, but you read—you know—it's harrowing. You know, he actually had two boat trips. One was across the Malacca, the first was across the Malacca Straits, which is that really, really um, busy, stormy um, shipping lane between Malaysia and Indonesia. Mm. Um, pirates, murders. Mm. Yeah, pretty dodgy. Mm. Yeah, there was a storm and the ship's engine cut out. Oh, great. The, the, the captain started crying and praying. He just gave up and started praying. Yeah. Um, nobody could swim. Everyone was terrified. They did manage to be um, rescued. 
And then after that, just imagine stepping onto another boat again from Indonesia to get to Australia. He also talked about being shoved in the boot of a car and was there for hours and hours. And his bottom must have been on something hot because he developed burns. Um, Just horrific stories. Um, And the way he told it was like a matter of fact, because I know that if you probably delved into it, there was a lot more to it. Well, and this is the dilemma. I did note that during the week, Scott Morrison was saying he doesn't, he wouldn't want anyone to go through that again. And like... You've got that's an undeniable mm. piece of piece of wisdom, isn't it? Um, but if you, we don't hear what's happening in Afghanistan, yeah. and it's horrific. There's, you know, just um, a few days ago there was more bombings and um, attacks on Hazaras, um, particularly those polling stations um, mm. during the elections. Mm. Um, so you know it's. The choice between living every day with death hovering around or making this um, leap to safety. Mm. You know, they do talk about the death toll and it's, um, it's, it's, it's horrible, you know, about the people who've drowned in trying to get here. But to punish the survivors just seems to be inhuman. Like the death toll on Australia's roads every year is, you know, um, I've just forgotten, I think it's almost 2,000 every year. But we don't use these kind of punishments on people who choose to drive cars. Hmm. So I think we can we can ensure safety, but as well show a bit of humanity. Wow. Well, it's still an ongoing hmm. adventure for you, isn't it, as you've said um... <laughs> Abdul's in his early 20s and so is your oldest son yeah. and uh, this relationship will go on for some time, I, I expect. Is is that your expectation? Well, uh, it's it's a forever relationship with with all of us and Ahad. Ahad's moved out now, um, but we're family. So I'm sure, you know, the boys will move out of home and start their own lives. But, you know, hopefully they'll call their mum. <laughs> All mothers are saying that. (laughs) Well, it's been delightful getting to know you just a little bit. Um, Emma, thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me on and letting me talk about it. Emma Adams, she's the author of Unbreakable Threads. And that's published by Alan and Unwin. You'll find it around in bookstores at the moment and online in lots of places, I'm sure. We'll put that interview onto our Open House podcast site, openhousecommunity.com.au. Did that change the way you're thinking about the refugee issue? I wonder. And I wonder how history will judge this period of Australian uh, history, of Australian politics. A good story, isn't it? Emma Adams. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.